Hello and welcome to Additive Insight, the original additive manufacturing podcast, and your source for news, interviews and comments on the latest 3D printing and additive manufacturing intelligence. Brought to you by TCT Magazine. I'm your host, Sam Davis, and today I'm joined by Accentium co-founder and CEO, Blake Teibel. Accentium came into the 3D printing industry primarily as a filament manufacturer, before moving into polymer extrusion hardware with the high-speed extrusion series. Having expanded into hardware, the company picked up several contracts of the US Department of Defense, where it has generated most of its revenue in recent years, and was recently acquired by Nexa 3D. In between, Ascension was one of several AM firms that decided to partner with a SPAC to list on the stock market, but the deal fell through in early 2022. As we sat down at last year's Fall Next event, Typel explained in detail why the company moved into hardware, why the SPAC deal never happened, and why the Nexa 3D merger makes sense. He also provides detail on Ascension's work with the USDOD, but first picks up the conversation with the company's backstory. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more additive insight, head on over to tctmagazine.com where you can subscribe to the print edition of TCT Magazine and our weekly additive insight newsletter for free. So if you if you sort of zoom out, Sam, and you look at you look at Ascentium as a as a as a long story, it's got sort of I would say kind of four chapters. You know, there was Ascentium materials in the early days. We launched uh, 2013 as a materials research and materials services company. This was pre for us, we were not in the additive space at We were in the injection molding and specialty polymer space. We made custom compounds, custom formulations uh, against, you know, sort of research demands or, or research contracts. We had primary clientele at the time, uh, the National Science Foundation in the United States, uh, which does a lot of funding for sort of tech startup businesses when they're considered sort of too early stage in order to qualify for venture capital or private equity. Um, so if you're early stage but you've got technical promise and an idea of how to commercialize, then you can write for what are called SBIR grants. Um, uh, some granting agencies call them grants, some home contracts. This is important because it'll feature in the story again later, but in the early days we had um, a National Science Foundation grant. Um, we had also, myself and a couple of engineers, had written a proposal to Ford Motor Company for some nanocellulosic research. Uh, I actually was able to get Ford to not only fund the industry side of the research for that, and, and, and you know, from a scaling partner perspective, but also actually uh, they contributed enough money to fund my PhD program. So I did all of graduate school at Texas A&M in the material science department during the early days of Ascentium materials. So I was a full-time graduate student during the day, and then I was an entrepreneur by night. That was kind of our story. Um, and, and so, you know, materials research, and we made some money from Ford, we had some money from the National Science Foundation, and we had another sort of um, an investor, you know, sort of a, a high net worth individual who came alongside us and said, you know, I believe in you guys, and I'm going to fund your business plan. Um, even before there really was a fully fledged business plan. Right. And so we got some funding and, and there was a team of four of us and that was Ascentium Materials for for you know many years, from 2013 through until about 2016, 2017, that was basically our team. So what what kind of brought about the move into AM from the kind of injection model? Yeah. What was so, the motivation there? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we basically started looking at how do you build value? How do you make money long term? Because when you're in an entrepreneurial venture, you sort of have to think to yourself, 
how do I exit? How do I create value for shareholders? And what we learned was that research services is very difficult to monetize. I mean, Terry Wolders figured out how to do it. He sold to ASTM, you know? Congratulations, and, and he did a great job. But he basically was like, I mean, I don't know, maybe there's other examples of people who like sold their knowledge, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But like, there's not that many, you know? It's much more customary to build a business that can sell a product, you know, as opposed to selling a service. So, you know, along about that, that the end of that previous timeline I mentioned, so sort of like 2016, 2017, we started looking at um, pivoting away from research services into, you know, what can we productize and how do we how do we get in the product space? So, we looked at growth industries. So, the non-woven fiber composites industry was a growth industry, and additive manufacturing is a growth industry. And so, we evaluated both industries, and we evaluated the capex that would be needed in order to build processing equipment to make products and the capex was lower, the return on investment was therefore shorter and the industry was overall more attractive in additive than in non-woven fiber composites. So we went back to our investor base, which was again basically a family office and we said, hey, can we get some money to build to buy a rudimentary processing line to make filament? And so we got some money for that and we started making filament and started selling filaments in sort of 2016, 2017 timeframe. Um, and and we, we, we had been exposed to some pretty interesting ideas on creating multi-layered filaments. And so uh, microwave energy inside of a printer combined with multi-layered filament materials uh, was a pathway to address one of the fundamental weaknesses of extrusion additive, which is of course delamination. So, uh, we had the basis at that time to build a VC investor deck and, and, and start to get some funding, but we were missing one key piece uh, in those days, which at the, at the end of the day for us was basically the machine. So sort of, you know, 2017 and then starting into 2018, um, we met a, a group of guys who in essence became available on the market through a, a, a torturous series of events and uh, we ended up building a 3D printer uh, so that we could create an open architecture machine that was truly industrial and we, therefore, as material scientists, could have a relationship with the customer, the end user. We didn't have to go through a machine manufacturer to have a relationship with the customer. Um, and that was important to us. And so uh, 2018 started building machines, um, sort of fall of 2017, spring of 2018, and then um, have been really in that phase of our business which is sort of the 3D printing phase of the business, which comprises sort of the last three chapters of the book, so to speak. I mentioned four chapters. First chapter being materials research and injection molding focused primarily. That chapter ended, and then chapter two sort of started, and then chapters two through four kind of ran from 2018 up until now, which is, of course, fall of 2023. So, yeah. so in terms of the machine and the movement into, into hardware, was that, you said it was kind of the, you know, the missing piece. Is that, is that based on looking out into the market and seeing the capability of the machines in the industry at that time? Or was that just a, for our business and what we want to do with the business, we need to also kind of carry hardware and bring the kind of materials and hardware solution to our customers? It was actually both. So we looked at the marketplace, marketplace and we said, okay, we mapped out all of the industrial extrusion polymer systems and there was basically Stratasys with their Fortis lineup, and then there was nearly nobody else who really had some, you know, what could be thought of as a fully featured, true industrial grade machine. Of course, the only challenge with you know, Stratasys, if you're starting from the outside, is it's a closed architecture. 
So you really have no way to interact with the architecture. And, and backing up, even before Ascentium, my background before that, I was at Caterpillar, before that I was at John Deere. And like, when I was at Cat, I was there for nearly five years, and I was on the team that built a factory and put a value chain on the ground out of a green field. And we were only using open architecture machines. We didn't call them open architecture machines at that time, but that was how we built our factory. We had Mazek machines and Renishop probes and kind of metal drills and Mitsubishi inserts and a Siemens MES and all these different technology types played well in the sandbox. And that was just called manufacturing. And so I had a mindset coming into additive that like, well, open architecture, you know, is just sort of the way that actual manufacturing is done. And so at the end of the day, that control point needs to reside with the customer. And so we felt that was important and there were other customer uh, needs that we felt the market was expressing in terms of an open architecture system that was truly industrial. So with all the performance of the Stratasys machine, but with control points that resided with the customer. And so we felt like the market would adopt and be willing to accept a machine like that. And so that was the foundation, that fundamental research was the foundation for what led us into launching the machine. Mm -hmm. And then in terms of the capabilities of the machine, you mentioned you know, obviously having open architecture, but how did you look to potentially differentiate yourselves yeah. in terms of the, the kind of tech and the the, the component trail of the machine. Yeah, so really, um, you know, it, it was never about the architecture for architecture's sake. We did look at a lot of machines and they were kind of all built the same. Uh, all of the um, extrusion machines of that era, and still really to this day, most of them, 90% or more, are built the same. They have sort of a Cartesian gantry system, they have some belts and some pulleys, they have some open loop stepper motors or maybe some stepper servo hybrid motors fairly rudimentary motion system. It's like a motion system that if I was a middle schooler and I wanted to learn mechatronics, like these are the types of components that I would buy from like Radio Shaft or something like that. And I would just build a machine that I could understand with kind of a middle school level education. I mean, if you look at other industrial automation equipment, what you find are linear motors and, you know, look at like HP's Indigo wide press printers, for example. I mean, these machines are fantastically complex. And they lay down incredibly accurate depositions, drop-wise, with just incredible technology, and they make, you know, the, the 2D printed banners and signs and all the and magazines and all these. These machines are a world apart from anything that was in additive. Uh, similarly, semiconductor capital equipment, and what I mean by that is capital equipment that actually makes circuit boards and electronic devices, also just a world apart from where additive technology was, but mature, very mature. Not, it wasn't like it was, let's you know combine AI with some mystical robotic system. It was like, you know, semiconductor machines had been designed for 20 years with linear motors and high accuracy and servo motors and you know encoders with one micron resolution just in order to be able to put transistor chips and other things like that on top of boards you had to have high speed combined with high accuracy. So the team that we got to work with in late 2017, 2018, was a team familiar with designing machines of that type. So for us, our architecture, in terms of differentiation, came about because of the team that we partnered with. It did come from a fundamental belief that extrusion machines, as they were, were just too slow. And there was a faster, there was an ability to lay down plastic faster was a fundamental belief that we had. And if you look at it, it's, you know, injection molding, they use shear thinning techniques and all kinds of very fancy techniques for a really long time. I mean, two-shot molds, multi-shot molds, 
over molding, all these things. And so we said, okay, extrusion additive, there was an industrial layer of the market, there was a commodity layer of the market, and we thought there's a place kind of, you know, towards the upper end of that market where we could bring mature technology from outside of additive into additive. And so I think still to this day, you know, I'm not aware of any other companies that use the same type of techniques that we do to generate speed. I mean, linear motors for extrusion, there's maybe a couple of Asian businesses that are doing this now. Um, but like, you know, I would call like market leaders in sort of North America and Europe and so on are still relying on belts and bolts. I mean, even the brand new launches that you see of brand new machines here at this show still have belts and bolts. <laughs> and so for us, you know, accuracy was important and speed and torque and all those things are really important. So that's why we went after an ability to have fast machines. Yeah. And then in terms of applications, I think probably when I first stepped onto an Ascension booth at a trade show, the, the, the majority of applications I think that you were showcasing were probably more tooling mm -hmm. and jigs and fixtures. Yeah, absolutely. So tell me about uh, the kind of entry into industrial markets with those kind of applications and then we'll, we'll come on to the work that you have been doing over the last few years with the, uh, the Air Force and, and the Defense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The first couple of years, Sam, exactly to your point, we were heavily focused on tooling. The founding thesis behind this go-to-market strategy with this product set was how do we help transform the world's factories? And so, you know, harkening back to my Caterpillar days, I was like, man, you know, I want a system that would be considered industrially relevant inside of a factory because the tooling, fixtures, and jigs that we used at Caterpillar were made on mills and lathes. And then I met with this other machines team, mostly out of California, some of whom came from Apple and semiconductor device and, and med device and so forth. They had this variety of backgrounds and they all felt the same way. They said, look, why don't we use high-speed printers to produce you know, tooling and fixtures and jigs for the world's factories. <coughs> and so, um, so we focused on that. 2019 and early part of 2020, um, after we had launched machines, we had projects running with Reebok and um, with Flextronics and you know one of the major automakers looking at printed tooling and fixtures and jigs. And uh, it, the projects largely were going well because if you sort of think about all the additive strategies that have been written from sort of 2015 up through 2020, it wasn't like we were just, we had like, you know, discovered unobtainium or something. A lot of folks thought that printed tooling was a good idea. And so, in fact, strategies had gone in at places like Ford and GM and, you know, Land Rover or whatever in order to say, hey, why don't we use additive to take care of some of the tooling needs in our, in our, in our factories. So we were a bit responsive to some of those strategies that we saw from, again, global manufacturing and realized that we had a product set they could do that at much lower speeds. And people have asked us, well, why not focus on the end use part? Well, when you think about extrusion, extrusion is great at a lot of things, but there are only so many end use parts with a surface finish flexibility to be able to be made from extrusion, um, which is where we'll go here next in aerospace and defense. But certainly at that time, you know, the surface finish didn't matter so much when you're making tooling and fixtures and shapes. These aren't these aren't end-use consumer parts. They're end-use parts in factories. They're functional end-use, you know, industrial parts. Mm -hmm. And so it's a great fit for additive solutions. And in fact, the volumes, people might think, well, tooling is low volume. Well, actually, if you look at tooling and fixtures and jigs for high volume end-use application, you know, consumer applications like automotive, like high, you know, high volume automotive and or consumer electronic device, I mean, they're making hundreds of fixtures or thousands of fixtures per year, 
to make hundreds of thousands, if not millions of consumer devices per year. And so the turnover on tooling and fixtures in the hundreds or thousands of units on an annualized volume basis is also itself a perfect fit for Advent. So it was a great business, and again, we weren't alone here. There were other people who were looking at that and had seen the same things that we had seen. Um, but then, of course, along came the pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, shall we go into the pandemic? And I guess, as a, just from a, a business perspective, and we'll come back and do, do defend, but what the challenge there? Obviously, nobody had any idea, really, or any reference to how you navigate that. So how, how does a 3D printing business well, for us, the two are actually linked. So the rise in our business with the U.S. government and then, and then correspondingly with aerospace and defense um, happened during the pandemic. So in calendar year 2020, for example, our revenues grew 7x over the prior year. And so that was very unusual. Like we, But that's important also for what will happen later with the SPAC story. So our revenues rose, our in install base you know, jumped, our adoption jumped, and we had we had challenges, of course, during that period, visiting the world's factories. And some of the sort of you know factory projects uh, really got shut down. Um, uh, you know, Reebok got shut down, Flex, Ford, they all got shut down. And then even some work we were working on at that time with some West Coast new customers all got shut down. Um, and so, so for us, it was very fortuitous that we had a rise in government spending and government. Um, dollars flowing into additive during that same period. So we built an effort, so so again, you remember in the first chapter of Ascenti Materials, we had some small SBIR grants. Well, in this sort of middle chapter of Ascenti Inc., because again, 2018, we sort of restructured the business, dropped the materials moniker, because now we're doing machines too, so we became Ascenti Inc. And so, uh, but at that time we said, we're not doing government anymore, we're not doing SBIR. We're not doing these small business innovation research grants. We're too late stage for that, we're moving too fast. The grants are too small, it's too much of an overhead headache, we're not doing it. Well, 2019 and 2020, basically, there were some innovations happening, unbeknownst to us, on the acquisition side of the US Air Force. So there were some really smart contracting officers. They got together and started working with the undersecretary of the Air Force, the guy who was in charge of, of logistics and acquisition for the, for the Air Force. I mean, the guy. <laughs> He basically said, what the U.S. Air Force is great at is buying, you know, airplanes and, like, large weapon systems. What we're terrible at buying is small and medium-sized stuff. And so we need to reform our logistics and how we actually purchase from small and medium enterprise, you know, across, you know, the United States. And so um, they put these contracting strike forces together that would go from proposal to contract in single-digit weeks which is like unheard of speed for any kind of governmental bureaucracy issuing money. Well, what that meant though for us was all of a sudden we could go from writing a proposal to developing a, a commercial strategy at the same, at the same pace. Because that's where our, our planning horizon, when you're, a, when you're a growth stage small company, your planning horizon is measured in one or two quarters. I mean, maybe six months is all you can see because the whole world changes and your business model changes and everything else. Set aside the pandemic, but like even just during normal business, if you're growth stage, you're planning horizons, you know, single digit months. So us being able to, to, to consider going after a government contract and then getting awarded a government contract on that same time scale was for us transformative because it meant 
that small Ascentium could work with great big U.S. Air Force. And so we did. Um, and so the Air Force said, hey, we have the similar needs that the factories have, which is to say, we need uh, componentry, so ground tooling, uh, service parts, and in some cases, maintenance parts that um, are available for our aircraft uh, within hours and not months. And so basically, you know, the, the, the logistics agency, the DLA, the Defense Logistics Agency, um, is, is, is responsible for providing spare parts for all the stuff that America and our allies put in the field. So every vehicle, drone, plane, tank, Hummer, doesn't matter, all the spare components for that run classically through this Defense Logistics Agency. It's one of the world's largest warehouses and largest warehouse systems for everything. They stock paper clips and they stock missiles. Like, you know, it's a very, very diverse business. Uh, and they're responsible for getting whatever the warfighter needs, whether it's a paperclip or a missile, downrange immediately in some cases. Because life, you know, lives are death, life, you know, life or death hangs on logistics, right, at the end of the day. We, run, we ran in our first award, we were able to go from proposal to contract in six weeks, mm -hmm. and it was three quarters of a million dollars. So it was like real money. It was like, okay, I can do something with this money. And what we did then for the next, so that was the summer of 2019 actually, and so then for the fall of 2019, we proved out value delivery of a printer, a 3D scanner, um, and you know an operator and our materials um, for an F-16 flight line in, at Lackland Air Base in San Antonio, Texas. And so they were turning F-16s and in fact we were also looking at um, cargo planes. They had cargo planes, both C-17s and the C-5 um, galaxies. And so there were a number of what were considered parts that were um, able to be flown but are non-structural. You're talking about like cosmetic parts or parts, you know, panels or sheet metal replacement parts. We also had C-130 uh, components from another flight line up in Dallas. And so we were just basically seeing what parts could we print that allow the aircraft to turn around more quickly or to receive service more quickly. So there was, for example, a transmission um, on, a, on, a, on a prop plane, a, C a C-130 prop plane. There was this little cover piece for it that you had to like, after you pull the transmission, you had to cover the shaft output hole so you could ship the transmission for service. Otherwise, there would get gunk and dust and dirt inside there and so uh, but, but these transmissions of these old planes you they never had like covers up for anything so and you can't use cardboard it's not strong enough or and so you could print the cover for this and then you could service the transmission then you could get an airplane back in the air so that was the whole idea so 2019 we took all that value delivery all those use cases we wrote back to this chief guy who was reforming, you know, logistics named Will Roper, Dr. Roper, um, nuclear physicist by training, right. and um, decided, you know, as one does. <laughs> and uh, I think Cambridge or Oxford educated, you right. know, one of those. Yeah. And, um, and, and we said, hey, you know, there's this new program that he had invited us to apply to called Stratfy, and so we applied to that, got awarded in September of 2020, and so we went from three quarters of a million up to over 26 million mm -hmm. in contracted dollars. That was out over a multi-year period. The first year we got a few million of that, mm -hmm. but then, you know, it was a four and a half year award. And so we're still on the tail end of delivery for that. Um, and so right now, what I can tell you is we have our, our printers themselves are getting qualified, like the actual right. approved vendor list qualification status for the machines mm -hmm. so that 
apart from Stratasys, you know, our machines can actually uh, be qualified to, to be used to produce airworthy parts against a series of, you know, <laughs> extensive requirements that we've covered over the last three and a half years. So, so yeah, so, so sort of 2018, 2019, 2020, we started, you know, kind of growing the, the machine business, started working with factories, pandemic closed that down. We, we discovered that aerospace and defense, especially in the form of the U.S. Air Force, had the same kind of time scale for some of their needs. Mm -hmm. So we said we can address that, and we showed them how. And then they basically said, yeah, we agree, and we're going to fund you guys to become another defense contractor, uh, basically. And so now Ascentium's business largely actually is um, as a defense contractor. And so we're not only working with the Air Force, we're working with the National Guard Bureau on both the Air and Army side. We've got multiple printers with the U.S. Army, multiple now with the U.S. Navy, um, and we're in discussions with the Marine Corps. And so, um, so yeah, that's how our business kind of grew during that period. Okay, and then at this point, I think things start to overlap, but I don't remember the correct chronology, but around the around the time you kind of go for the SPAC, you announce you're going into metals. So that's yeah. maybe take metals first and talk sure, about that sure. kind of expansion of the business, <coughs> and then we'll, we'll kind of get into the, the SPAC stuff. Yeah, so, well, as as usual, your, your timing's right on. So we had... Um, so, so 2019, 2020, as I articulated, we were getting into the polymer space, like the polymer logistics provision of like yeah. polymer parts and ground tooling, by the way, and training aids and a whole plethora of parts. Um, it was all polymer based, but what there was a question that was posed to us at the end of 2020. It said, hey, what if you took your software ecosystem and your training ecosystem and used your also your machine, like the bones of your machine, the motion core, the motion kernel and the motion stage and those things and made a field deployable metal printer and so you know it basically is a metal machine that has to work on land on sea like in, in the ocean and also not like in the water but like <laughs> you know sea, on yeah. ships yeah. and stuff at sea at sea there you go thank you at sea uh and also in microgravity environments so ideally outer space um and also, we had to have a machine that was material switchable, so you could print sort of aluminum in the morning and sort of titanium in the afternoon right. uh, without an extensive teardown and changeover requirement. Um, we also needed to ideally have uh, low, you know, low, low costs. Yeah. Um, and then what they really also wanted the most was um, certain exotic uh, high temperature metals for certain high temperature applications. And so um, there wasn't a machine at that time, and in fact, there still isn't a machine today um, that you can put in the field, you can change metals out, uh, you don't get cross-contamination between powders, uh, the feedstock is able to be used at sea and in microgravity, um, and you can basically, you know, produce parts and everything from low, quote-unquote, low-grade materials like copper and aluminum, all the way up to very exotic stuff like niobium, tantalum, tungsten, molybdenum, things like that, these truly high-melting, you know, truly high-melting point. Uh, metals and so we proposed um, a metal solution that would be wire based um, and that would create features that would not quite be as good as you could get from laser powder bed fusion but better than you can get from most wire deposition processes because okay. to our eye most kind of wire welding based parts were fairly ugly mm -hmm. you know and so we said we still want to be able to have a feature size where it's a near net shape if not a net shape in a demanding environment, so you don't need to put this part onto a mill and finish it. After you print it, you can use it right off the printer. And so for us, that meant we had to have small diameter wire, 
And then we looked at how do we get high absorption efficiency across this broadband of metallurgies, and blue light laser was an innovation that was shown to have high coupling efficiencies across the entire band. And then when you use laser welding, you get microstructures that can actually uh, be used to make structural metal aerospace parts. Mm -hmm. um, and so we started working on metals. We wrote an award proposal to the U.S. Air Force, to the Air Force Research Labs. This is, this is, so our, our whole first batch, SIM, of contracts, all the polymer stuff we did, was basically taking a commercial system and making it commercial off the shelf, like DOD relevant, which in essence means, okay, I've got a training curriculum, I've got a pricing code, I've got instructions, I've got the ability to take it down range by packaging it in a, you know, a, a certain a ruggedized box in a certain way and the machine will survive. So like nothing, like there's no, there's no um, innovation, there's no like, um, it's, just, it's just sort of packaging and, and things like that. On the metal side, I would argue also no real innovation because there had been examples of you know, small wire welding with you know, red light laser and some other things. So we sort of said, well, we can do small wire welding with blue light laser, and then we're going to integrate these various solutions within our existing motion kernel and motion machine and all the base IP that we had developed even before we you know, ever started. So it was like, okay, we can basically do integration, systems integration over here and make a new machine um, that'll meet the requirements uh, and so, and we can use our same software and so forth. So that was the basis of our proposal in 2021. And so we wrote it, so again, we were notified end of 2020, so sort of Q1 of 21, we put together the, the proposal document and then um, Q2 2021, we were notified that we were gonna be, um, we had been selected for award. Unfortunately, we didn't get the actual award until uh, Q1 of 2022, so sort of like March of 22 was when we actually got the award. So, and, and no joke, Sam, this is like the direct result of all those brilliant innovators earlier of the Air Force who were focused on logistics, they all left. Wow. Because there was a, uh, an administration changeover. I see. And so, yeah. like, there was, you know, so, so 2022, you've got, you know, Joe Biden coming in and all that. And so, I'm not tying, like, innovation uh, <laughs> to, you know, in acquisitions to you know, Donald Trump, I'm merely saying that the people who were running things at that time yeah. were very focused on fast acquisition. And so we went, you know, again, the first contracts went on award in single digit weeks or single digit months. The second one went on award in like nine months, Right. you know, and so that was painful for us, honestly. Um, but yeah, so it, it, it gave us an ability to enter a very crowded area. Mm -hmm. I mean, metals is super crowded and it's very expensive. And, and like, it's a whole different requirement set, it's a different customer set, it's a different selling motion, different reseller channels. Like, everything about metals is actually different than plastics uh, in terms of the go-to-market strategy, not only, you know, in addition to, of course, the engineering. My background at Caterpillar was mostly a metallurgist, though, so I had a background, actually, in metallurgy from my design engineering at CAT. And so I would always kind of ask myself, should we get into metals? Mm -hmm. And then the other part of me would say, no, Blake, don't get into metals because <laughs> we don't have a way. So it was like, you know, shoulder angel, shoulder demon, like do it. No, don't do it, you know? And so I would basically talk myself out of getting into metals nearly every year that we founded Ascentium. I was like, I'm gonna get into metals. No, I'm not. 
But when we were able to carve out a bespoke strategy and we had a customer mm -hmm. that was willing to sign up to buy our first systems, yeah. then for me it became a no-brainer. Mm -hmm. And so we got into metals, um, and, and so got, got money in 2022, uh, in, the, in the spring of 2022, started the effort. Um, and so now, you know, fall of 2023, about 18 months in, and we've built three systems, and we're doing all, all of our kind of our internal, you know, work on process work. We've evaluated, I think, 10 different metals, you know, across the spectrum. Um, we're taking kind of a slow and steady approach. We're making sure that we're meeting our government obligations with the contract. We don't want to get out ahead of the obligations that we're being funded for. Um, and so we, we believe that this will transition, this technology we believe will transition into a full product portfolio. Mm -hmm. And we'll be able to sell metal machines to the government for their uses and we'll be able, be able to sell metal machines for general industrial applications. And obviously 21 into 22 um, is the time that you get into an agreement with a, with a SPAC company. Yeah, exactly right, exactly listed. right. So talk to me about I guess the opportunity you saw there, yep. and then I guess the, the the reasons why the deals are terminated and the challenges that yeah. as a company you face as you kind of get through that. that yeah, absolutely. Thing. So you know, Sam, that's a great that's a great question. So I just talked a whole lot about the technology evolution of Ascentium and the product evolution of Ascentium, but I didn't talk about the financial evolution of Ascentium. So now let me say a few words about the financial evolution of Ascentium. So. During chapter one, we were funded by you know a high net worth individual family office, as I mentioned, and some early stage grants, and then like a little bit of product revenue, you know, here and there. But it wasn't big dollars. It was not at all big dollars at all. I mean, you know, I think in those five years we maybe earned two million in revenue. Right. So a couple hundred thousand a year type, you know. So we were barely scraping by, not making really any money. Um, but we we felt like we had differentiated technologies. So we wrote for venture capital. Um, when we brought on the machines capability and started saying, okay, let me, let me try to you know, build the team and, and build the product for machines. Uh, I should say we brought on the machine strategy you know, in 2018. We basically said, okay, let's go fundraise for that. We had been working with BASF Venture Capital at the time um, and, and prior on some of the materials components. I mentioned earlier multi-layered filaments. BASF thought that was differentiated, so we worked with their chemistry and their polymer groups. Mm -hmm. And then in 2018, we said, okay, we're going to restructure the business, call it a Sensi Inc., but we yep. need to restructure our fundraising strategy and our, and our financials. So we went to market for venture capital, raised our first round of funding in the fall of 2018. So we had our Series A at about $16.5 million of cash. Um, and then we raised a couple other rounds, so an, an, a, you know, kind of like an A plus, you'd call it, in 2019. Mm -hmm. And then 2020, when we got this big award, I mentioned earlier, we got this this very large, you know, government contract where it went from three quarters of a million to 26 million. So we went, we used that, you know, validation really to go out and raise our Series B. So we raised a Series B of about another 25 million, brought that on in 2020. And so uh, the pandemic was happening. We, we did our fundraising in the very early stage, though, so we didn't probably raise quite enough. And how do you know how, much, how long the pandemic's going to be? Nobody knows, right? <laughs> I mean, come on. So, like, how much money do you need in order to, like, bridge yep. a globally, you know, unprecedented uh, economic risk? Like, you don't know. So, anyway, we, but we looked at what was happening financially in 2020, and you started to see businesses that actually were not that different from ours that were starting to find success in public markets. Mm -hmm. And to us, this was totally astonishing. We didn't have any 
plan at that period of time or idea that we could go public being a small business. I thought, you know, one day, once we cross 100 million in revenue, then we'll go public because we'll have historical financials, 100 million gives you sort of roughly speaking, you know, a billion dollar valuation, um, or at least in that order, depending on where the multiples are. And all that. But, but sort of, it's a, it's a company of size, it's a company of weight and all that. Well, we started getting outreach in the fall of 2020, winter of 20, really it was the winter of 2020, we started getting outreach from investment banks. And I had, you know, because we had had a Series A, we had our Series B, the government contract had gone, you know, live, so people started knew, okay, Ascentium is becoming a disruptor and a recognized disruptor in our space. And so if, if you think like, you know, an entrepreneur, you know, what are the signs that you're doing something important, the signs that you're winning, like, okay, you're, you're, you start to get outreach and people, people hit you on the inbound side, investors, Investors are inbound at that point. They're saying, can I invest in your business? And I'm like, well, we're not really raising, but we had you know, Credit Suisse who basically took desktop metal public. We had um, you know, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. We had uh, Guggenheim and Jefferies and you know, a series of sort of bulge bracket Wall Street banks, very reputable top shelf firms basically saying, hey, with your company profile and with the timing of the market, you can get access to public market monies. And we said, okay, this is something we actually need to take a look at. Even though we feel like we're early stage, we should take a look at this. Um, and so we did, we, were, we took a look at it. Um, and so we analyzed and then basically by March of 2021, we had a plan to try to go public via SPAC combination. And so we started the SPAC off process and you know, so we built the investor deck and started all the initial work. In the spring of 21, by the summer of 21, we were going hardcore at, um, you know, matchmaking with SPACs. We had, you know, five or six SPACs that were, and again, a SPAC is just a, it's a bank account. Like, it's a bank account with, like, five to six dudes that are just sitting there, like, managing a bank account of hundreds of millions of dollars. It's like, what the thing is. It's not a real, it's a real company, but it's not a real company, like, at the end of the day. And so their entire purpose is to find a private entity to take over and merge with and do a corporate merger. Private party and a public party merging under the public company's SEC documents. That's their entire purpose for existing. And so, and SPACs had been around for a long time and they had gone through waves of favor and waves of disfavor and they were coming back into favor. And so we saw, you know, Desktop Metal had had maybe 12 million in, in trailing 12 month revenues before they went public. Nano Dimension had like 2 million in trailing 12 month revenues. I mean, Velo 3D, Mark Forge. Mark Forge is I think probably the most mature. Um, but there was this whole kind of cluster of these emerging mid-market businesses in additive that were not that far away from each other in size. Now, those other businesses that I mentioned all had much more VC dollars than we did. We only had two rounds of VC dollars. Yeah. We'd raised you know, less than 50 million in total. Some of these other guys had raised you know, 10x that much money in, in private, you know, venture capital and private equity, out through Series E and so on. Um, so they were incredibly well capitalized. I will tell you that was a big difference. But in terms of revenue, number of employees, number of patents, you know, customer concentration, customer validation, we were at the same place. And so we said, all right, let's go ahead and, and, and do this as a fundraising strategy. So we went in 2021, as I mentioned. We finally had a SPAC partner signed up in August. And then unfortunately though, what had happened was 
these first companies that went out, so desktop went out in the fall of 2020, Nano Dimension went out in the fall of 2020, you had you know, uh, Velo 3D and Mark Forge both went out in the spring of 2021. In fact, Velo was the last one. Their public listing date was sort of like April, May of 2021. Uh, Mark Forge had, I think, public listing date of sort of February, March 2021. Well, unfortunately, every single one of those public securities were deteriorating in value. And they were deteriorating not just a little bit, they were deteriorating a lot. And so our journey was predicated on having a high amount of capital retained in the trust account of the SPAC combined with a high amount of what they call pipe funds. Pipe just stands for public interest in private equity. It's the, it's the rich folks that get the early look at all of the public deals before they go public. And when I say rich folks, of course, it's mostly you know hedge funds and so on. And so, you know, the, the the cost of capital. If you could raise a lot of capital, the cost of it was very low. Yeah. But if you couldn't raise a lot, then the cost of capital was obscenely high in a spec transaction. Um, due to the deterioration of the market, largely uh, in that time, we basically by by the time so, so it took us longer to find a SPAC partner because the because the market was... So some of these SPAC partners are like, okay, is there room for another additive manufacturing company? I see these other five. Essentium's going to be a sixth one. Like, is the size of the industry? Like, can we handle that? So we had a lot of tough questions that we had to navigate through. That took us a little while to find a SPAC partner in that summer. And then, you know, finding a pipe, you know, what they call it is sort of subscribing your book of pipe. That was really hard. There was no longer the availability of what some investors call sort of John Wayne pipe, which is just to say, you know, common stock. Because classic pipe was common stock that was basically tied up for six to nine months of some proxy period. So investors had to believe on the come enough to say, I'm going to be hands off of this capital for six to nine months. And in some cases, it's a $10 million check. In some cases, a $100 million check. I mean, we're talking serious capital that investor, you know, hedge fund money managers can't touch yep. during a classic pipe process. Um, so it was harder and harder to subscribe our pipe, harder and harder to find a SPAC partner. And so as the markets were deteriorating, so by the time the fall of 2021 came about, the SPAC market itself, the entire SPAC market, not just the Centium's transaction or the transactions in additive, but like SPACs everywhere were starting to fall apart. Like deals weren't getting done. If you looked at like, the number of public listings, you see a precipitous fall off of the number of public listings. By the way, any kind of public listing, a regular way IPO, a direct listing, a SPAC merger, any kind of public listing was starting to deteriorate sharply in the fall of 2021. So we were, we were like, okay, I don't know if we're gonna get this deal done. We, want, we had to constantly go back and restructure. So the only way we could get pipe money was like highly structured paper that was like these collar, you know, features of us having to be in the money for a certain, VWAP period of time. I mean, complex instruments, nothing about it was simple. And it was just all predicated on the rise of risk as seen by investors looking at that deterioration of the comparable asset class against which we were compared. Just like if you're going to buy a house in a fancy neighborhood, you know, you want to make sure that all the other houses in the fancy neighborhood are holding their value. Well, if you're signing up to buy a million dollar house, you better make dang sure that all these other houses that are priced at a million are staying at a million. Yeah. If they're falling 600,000, 500,000 for the same house, you're not gonna buy that house for a million. You're gonna buy it for 600,000. Yep. That was what was happening in the SPAC market. They were down off 10 bucks a share to eight bucks to six bucks to five bucks. That was the fall. Well, the fall, the, the decline and the dec declination of value didn't stop there, it continued. So we were supposed, we finally got our business combination agreement done right around November of 2021. It was close to the form next time, you might remember. Yeah, yeah. And so 
in fact, we were coming to Form Next and I was hoping we would have this glorious announcement. We just missed it because it didn't happen until the very end of November. We finally got this business combination. That's the merger. Remember I talked about how SPACs are not real companies. They're supposed to merge with real companies. So the way you do that is through what's called a BCA or business combination agreement, which is a merger document. And so the merger document basically says these two businesses are going to merge. They're going to become one business. And then that business has to file new paperwork with the SEC. It's called an S4 where you update all the documents that were originally filed for the SPAC. And then that SPAC relists under the new name. So that's kind of how that process works. So, <laughs> so anyway... Uh, all these comps, you know, were, were falling from five bucks a share down to two, three dollars, you know, three and two dollars a share. And so, you know, we, we took a look at it and we were like, okay, this SPAC that we had partnered with had $345 million. So Atlantic Coast acquisition company, Atlantic Coastal, they had $345 million in their SPAC. But, but unfortunately, most of the SPACs that actually listed in that period were seeing 90% redemptions. And so what that meant was the investors were pulling their money out at the time of listing. So they were saying, I'm going to take my money out at 10 bucks a share because it's likely to be worth less tomorrow. Yeah. And that's just public market economics, right? So, so they're pulling their money out at 10 bucks a share, 90%, which meant you'd, you'd, you'd be looking at about 34 and a half million bucks in our case. And then you had a pipe, pipe um, market of structured capital that wasn't going to be released to us on day one, but in fact, 100 million of it was going to be released in six months if our share price was above five bucks, which wasn't going to happen. (laughs) So we were staring down the face of a public market transaction knowing we're going to be undercapitalized and not have the money we needed to go out and achieve the admittedly ambitious business plan that we had used to raise all this capital. And that was what everybody was doing. It was the entire name of the game for fundraising during that period of time. All God's children were fundraising this way. If you could, you were doing it. It was just, didn't matter. And people believe, I mean, look, our growth, our growth model, you know, desktop metals growth model, everybody believed in their growth model because they believed they would have enough money to go out and buy the growth. And so when you see, and by the way, if you look at like industries, it actually makes a lot of sense because like carbon fiber fabric, I think about carbon fiber as a materials innovation. Like carbon fiber didn't take off as like a materials innovation for automotive or aerospace until about three and a half decades into like carbon fiber being mature, right? Like you didn't start to see BMW i7, uh, 7 series and i3s and other, and other cars being made with carbon fiber monocoques until like the mid 2000s. You didn't start to see carbon fiber being used in aeros, you know, in airplanes really until like the Boeing 787, which was engineered in the 90s and finally put into production in the early 2000s. So like it took a long time. So Additive was, was seeing that same kind of adoption curve and value creation. So we knew that it made sense that it was going to take a lot of money coming into Additive from outside Additive mm-hmm. in order to turbocharge the industrial adoption of Additive. Yeah. But what was happening in the world at this whole time? The pandemic. And so we had all these issues with global industrial adoption of new technologies during the time of global uncertainty. When nobody was certain about anything, people flee to safety and they're not going to adopt a new technology even if you give it to them for free. And by free, what I mean is the companies would would place a machine on consignment and they would say, if the use cases develop on the machine, then the buyer will pay for the machine. And so that made all the sense in the world during times of growth because the additive users, the executives at Desktop and Mark Forge and Sentium and so on, all knew what additive could do. People inside additive know that it's not a technology problem that we're facing. It's procurement and other things. 
So we knew that if we could take zero, you know, low to no risk in placing machines in the marketplace, then we would fill the machines with those use cases that we knew were possible machines. Because the customer would see a risk buy down on the other side of the table. The whole thing, still to this day, makes a ton of sense. If but for the high risk environment of the pandemic and those of things. So anyway, so we saw this crash in value. We had to pull out a spec transaction in the spring of 2022, um, early, so I should say the winter of 2022. So again, you know, coming back to our story here for a minute, I'm sorry, I'm a bit all over the place, but like in our story, you know, the business combination agreement was signed in late November. Um, we basically had to pull out of the transaction in January, February, because none of the, none of the economics, fundamental economics were still in place for public markets at that time. Yeah. When we started the journey in the spring of 2021, none of those economics were still there in January of 2022. So we pulled out and had to restructure our business at that point. Uh, and I, I know you need to run to another meeting, so oh, I yes. guess last question. From, from that point to where we are today, um, talk to me about how, you know, how Ascentium as a business has got to this point where, you know, a few days ago, as we record, next to 3D announces yeah, yeah. there's a letter of intent to acquire a Centium. Why the timing was right, why it yeah, absolutely. Sense, and what can we expect? Yeah, so I mean, look, you know, had, had a Centium been able to go public, um, we probably would have bought Nexa, you know. Um, <laughs> Or they would have gone public too. I mean, they have really good technology, and you know, obviously, seasoned leaders. So he might have taken their company public too. So, um, but in the combination of the two teams, what you find is a complete product portfolio. You've got photo resins and powders and extrusion. And you've got, you know, powder metal, and you have wire metal that's in development. And so, you really have an entire portfolio of solutions available to you. So, when the industrial customer is going to make a purchase decision. In, in many cases, they want a one-stop shop. They're like, okay, I want to be able to buy an extrusion solution and a photoresin solution, and I want it to come from one company. Mm -hmm. So combining, like, if you're a one, if you're a single company that can offer all those technologies, then you're having, you have an ability to grow. Look at all the leaders in the space, they have multiple technologies, right? Yeah. So for us, the best path to growth came from merging our businesses together. So operationally, it's a merger. Legally, it's an acquisition. So, you know, Nexa 3D is the acquiry of Ascentium, and so, you know, we are really thrilled that we can join their team and like their team and our team similarly sized, like the whole thing is really, you know, coming together and they've got a great commercial engine, we've got a great government engine, they've got, you know, machines capability, we've got materials capability along with machines and other areas, you know, and so it's, it's you know, they've got great software that we can benefit from. So, um, so it's, it's, it's just a combination that really, really makes sense. People have been talking for a long time about, the last couple of years in particular about there's a need for consolidation with an additive. Mm -hmm. And then we saw announcements earlier this year of what we would call uh, questionable uh, acquisition announcements of like where's the industrial logic. Like I don't know why Stratasys should buy Dust on Metal. I don't know why 3D Systems should buy Stratasys. I don't know what the heck Nano Dimension is going to do running Stratasys. Like there are these announcements, you know, and people are really left scratching their head like what the heck's going on. Well, you know, a lot of drivers are pushing companies towards a need to be profitable, a need to be, you know, economically viable and sustainable because there's a lot of disappointed investors on the sidelines. Because everybody who lost money, not just during the SPACs, but also during private placements, mm -hmm. is now saying we're hands off of additive for at least the next, I don't know, three, five years, something like that. Um, so, uh, Ascentium joining Nexa, we couldn't, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a great, it's a great combination. Our team and theirs together, I think, will be positioned so that we can be responsive when marketing time, when market time changes, and yeah. we look forward to whatever that's going to be for us. So.